and I did so with joy. This series is Praying the Psalms, and of course the Psalms are the church's prayer book. They were the prayer book of Israel, but the prayer book of the church. Our morning and evening prayers, for example, are built around the Psalms. You know, we pray them, we pray them as the church in the light of Christ, we pray them in a whole different way. Mm. And today's Psalm 35 is particularly beloved of, of Christians because it's about Jesus and the fulfillment of God's promises. But it also is about us here today. It's about both. Might not see it at first, but it's about both. So let's and so let's draw, let's learn how to pray this psalm in the light of the truth of Jesus. But also a practical application to our own lives. So again, 45 is a messianic psalm, and the messianic promise is nothing more than an expansion of the promise that was originally made to Abraham. Remember, Abraham was promised. He was promised land and descendants, but he's also promised that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That was in Genesis 22. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Mm. And the promise to David is a continuation, a focusing in of that promise, that original promise that in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He says to David in 2 Chronicles 17, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what, putting that together, what do we find out? What is the hope of Israel? First of all, is remember, Abraham, when he used the word offspring in Hebrew, the word seed, it's singular, it's a generic singular plural. It can be descendants, your offspring, as an English offspring. I mean, I'm an offspring, right? It can be one person, or it can be a, whole, a multitude, all brothers and sisters. But we, know, we learn in this psalm that it's not just it's not everyone, all the offspring, all the descendants of, of, of Abraham. It says, you know, that offspring will be a single man. Not your sons, but one of your sons. The next thing we have is that man will be anointed king. You know, the kings, of course, were anointed by the crowd, the, the pouring of the old Messiah, the Christ. And that single man will be anointed king, but not only will he be David's son, he will be God's son. And finally, his kingdom will last forever. So the promise that we have to all the nations, the promise to Israel with their land and the descendants of, of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, but the promise of the world with their being offspring who would bless us, an offspring with all the offspring, particularly Jesus Christ. And in him what we have is that single man, we have one who's anointed as king, the Messiah, the Christ, son of David, but son of God as well, both, and his kingdom will last forever. Now, Messianic Psalms are a number of them in the, in, in the Psalter, are, draw us near to that promise. When we pray them, we, we give thanks to God for the reality of that promise in our lives. And one thing we should notice, on one level, they're often very explicable in near-term uh, in, in, in near way. For example, today we talk about verses of praises for the king. But on another level, the Messianic Psalms take us beyond the immediate circumstances. Clearly, there's something more. There's something over the top of them that cannot be explained simply by those circumstances. Alabama prophecy is bifocal. There's often an immediate meaning, a very narrow meaning, but a much greater prophecy. You know, at first Peter were taught that he says no word of prophecy, second Peter rather, is is belongs is a matter of interpretation. They spoke from God. The idea that both Jews and Christians share is prophecy is bigger than the prophet. We can prophesy things that we have no idea how true they are. Remember Caiaphas in the book of John, ironically there? As he said, it's, it's profitable that one man should die instead of the whole the whole nation. He certainly wasn't thinking of the full reality of those terms, but it said he spoke as a prophet because high priest that year. So 
So the prophecy is bigger than the prophet. So we have in these, we have, no matter what the immediate circumstances were, there's something, and all the indications, there's something much more here than just those circumstances. And it was except this is not eisegesis, and we talk about exegesis, you know, taking things out of that. We're not reading this into the text. As we know from the, from the New Testament, Jews and Christians both understood these as promises of the Messiah. My argument about who that Messiah was, who was that son of David, but not the fact that these were promises of the Messiah. These were beyond that time. So let's look at specifically at the text of Psalm 45. What does that tell us? How do we celebrate? We talk, I address my verses to the king. First of all, that that promised offspring would be a king. This is one of the main themes in John's Gospel. You notice that John's Gospel emphasizes that Jesus can stop things at any moment. His kingship is rule. Remember, John's Gospel alone tells us when the soldiers came to get him, they rolled back. He has to give them permission to take him. Jesus is always in control. Mm. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He is in control. He's the king. And John, in his Gospel, emphasizes again that kingship is very real, but it takes a very different form than we would expect as human beings. He wears a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. Right? We, uh, we have Jesus before Pilate says, I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. He said, otherwise my followers would have risen up. And he says, on the, on the cross, you know, Pilate writes, king of the Jews. So his kingship. So this is a king, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who will save us. It says, most handsome of the sons of men. It tells us something fundamental. We are created in the image and likeness of God. The image and likeness of God. And only Jesus has maintained that, as a human being, has maintained that image intact. That's what it means, more handsome than the sons of men, more than anyone else. He alone is a human being who is perfectly, as a human being, that Jesus born in, in Bethlehem was truly a perfect man. Nothing in his conduct ever changed that perfect image of God. That's why Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God, the God we can see. We can see what that image looks like, not deformed by sin, but in its perfection. <coughs> it says, grace, in verse 2, is poured out on your lips. What is that relationship? He is not just saying he is the word of God, right? John's gospel, and John's called the great theologian in the church, right? He's the one who explains what it all means. How does he begin the gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You know, we say, how do we know what's in a person? It's the word they speak with. We can't know someone. If I said I knew somebody, and you found I'd never even talked to them, you'd say, oh, you mean you recognize them. You don't really know them. You can't know someone without their speech. It's the speech that tells us what's inside. And Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is the mouth of God, the word of God. And the effective word. The word, when Jesus, unlike us, when he says something, it happens. In fact, it makes things happen. When the word of God in creation says, let there be light, there's light. It says, there you are blessed forever. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Normally, in the Old Testament, blessings are for you and your descendants. There's an end of that blessing for you, and it has to go on in someone else. Mm. But you are blessed forever. Mm. There will be no end to that blessing. You know, the tomb will not, will not hold him down. That, that blessing never is ended by death. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. We cherish peace and things, uh, as well we should, but in the ancient world, it was a very tough neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And people loved peace, certainly, but the reality was you needed someone who could protect you. 
Remember it talks about the Old Testament sort of haunting in a way. Spring, the time when kings go out to war. Mm. It was such a part of life. And so here's the one who would protect us from the devastation, enslavement, theft, all the things that people faced. Here was the one who would defeat enemies, right? That's what a king did. Gird, on your, gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So it reminds us, Jesus' mission is victory over our enemies, sin and death. And Jesus actually carries on him the weapon that destroys death. And that's the cross. He, he bears the cross. Here, that's the weapon he has. I sort of like this image, hardly biblical. You know, we have all these things, it's like putting a wooden stake through the heart. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's actually, that's why Jesus, that, that he actually, it's the trophy, he will actually drive that stake. The cross will through death, this heart, it will be, 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 be devastated. And notice this, it will be in splendor and majesty. In John's Gospel, we're pointing out that people look at the wrong places. The moment of glory of Jesus wasn't the resurrection, that was the seal. But the moment of glory was the cross. Mm. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Mm. Maybe if glory is like an athlete, when are they, you know, they look back on their career, when are they at the top of their game? You know, like their best game, what was it at the top? You know, when is God most God? When do we see him at the most God-like? It's on the cross, completely pouring himself out. Mm. So that's his glory. You know, put bright, uh, gird your sword on your thigh, carry his cross in, in your splendor and majesty. Mm. And it says, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. You know, one of the ironies we think sometimes is on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes in and read it as king. And then he has the death, of the death on the cross, which is the opposite of the same. Actually, the two are completely together. Jesus is coming to tell us that the real meaning of those events is a victory. But it's not just any victory. It's for the cause of truth and meekness mm. and righteousness. That's not why kings go out to battle. It's all their glories. You look at their monuments and things. Where it says, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Mm. A king who goes out for the victory of meekness, justice, righteousness. It says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. We might miss the, the point here, but with armor and things, arrows were not terribly effective weapons. You know, it was very hard to get a hit that would actually kill someone. People bled to death more often. It was very good with armor and things. You had to get people in just the right place. Remember Ahab in his death, it has to be just the right place in order to get them. And he talks about these, his arrows that are in the very heart, right on the money, mm. and absolute, it's an end. There's no question, it's over. Mm. So we're told that Christ's victory, you know, over death is like that. We know that Christ being raised from the dead tells us, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It wasn't a part, it's like back in the Red Sea, remember? That after they, Israel, the children of Israel passed through, what happens the next morning? We've spoken of this. Because it's not an ironic, it's not just an ancillary detail. The bodies wash up on the shore. Why is that important? If the Egyptians were simply blocked, they, you know, Pharaoh could cross the Red Sea. They did it all the time. They're called boats, they can go around. They would simply have been a day or two behind. How do we know this was it was gone forever, that the domination, the slavery to Pharaoh would never happen again because Pharaoh was no more? This is the, the arrows go into the king's heart. Death no longer has dominion over him. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's actually addressed as God. It's like Jesus speaking of another psalm we'll talk about in the series. You know, uh, said the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. Jesus said, how can David, who's righteous, call him Lord? Because David would not rank him as his father. You know, it's God. Your throne, O God, is forever. So the promised king is not just... Uh, someone who's been selected for this, one of us, which he truly is, but he's more than that. 
He's divine, meaning his reign is eternal. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of, right, of uprightness. His rule is based on righteousness, not force. For Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is the summary of Jesus' ministry, isn't it? And actually, the apostle, he said, well, you know, Jesus, he went about doing good. He, that's how he described it. He went about doing good. You know, he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. See, something unique about the Messiah is we talk about the anointed one, but kings weren't the only ones who were anointed, right? Priests were anointed. And prophets were anointed. But you weren't normally all three. You certainly could not be a king and a priest. They were different lines. It was one or the other. Jesus combines those in one anointing. Remember, it's Psalm 110 that tells us, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're talking, in Hebrews, it tells us that's about Jesus. He's that priest. So why his anointing is about anyone else's anointing? Is he is the anointing, not just has an anointing, like a prophet or a priest or a king. He has all three anointings in one. Prophet, priest, and king, and they never end with death. Mm. He's anointed with the oil of gladness, the Holy Spirit, beyond your companions. And it says, from ivory palaces, string instruments make you glad. Our, our, our promise is dear to the, to the early Christians. Jesus, even now, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Mm. It's not something that will happen. It has happened. Mm. He's there now. Mm. And then we go on in verses 16 and 17. It says, in the place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. The great promise to us, we actually share this. His victory is our victory. It says, if you have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The promise is we will share in that reign. That's what he calls us a, you know, a royal priesthood, royal kingly. We will reign with him. And it says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever. Remember, Philippians said, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth. We think of those scenes in the book of Revelation of the worship of God and the Lamb. Well, we might be tempted to stop here about all those wonderful things about Jesus and remind that we pray those psalms. If we did, we'd miss the main point of the psalm. You see, one thing, sadly, that's not in your bulletin, understandably, it's not a critique, you normally don't put this in, is what does the title of the bulletin say? It says to the leader, according to um, uh, I can't read it, to, uh, uh, the, the Korahites, uh, it's a masculine, it says, a love psalm. Mm. The scriptures itself describe this psalm is a love song. It's actually for a wedding. Mm. That's why we skip those verses. It's not like, well, that gets in the way, let's go back to Jesus. That is the purpose of the psalm. It tells uh. us this glorious king, uh. but the event we're celebrating is his wedding. So that's where we look here. We have uh, and so uh, he says he's focused, okay, we have so we read those verses, daughters of kings are among the ladies of honor, at your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, addressing that queen, and consider and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him, the king the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people, all, the, all glorious of the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, and her virgin companions follow behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. 
I suggest this is our focus today. Mm. See, the gospel story in all regular gospels is not just about Jesus, it's about Jesus taking his bride. Mm. And that bride is the church. Look at John's gospel, which is particularly evident. John, we know John the Baptist is the one that John the Baptist is the uh, is the is the one who comes before Jesus. And how does he describe his mission in John's gospel? Because this is a big theme in John's gospel. He describes himself as the best man at a wedding. He's the best man at a wedding. He says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, that's being the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's there for a wedding. He's the best man. And the public ministry of Jesus, John's gospel emphasized, begins at a wedding reception. Remember in Cana of Galilee. It says, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. No accident, it was a wedding. The promise of the Old Testament of God taking his people as bride. Mm -hmm. This is happening. Jesus is coming for that purpose. Mm -hmm. That's what the gospel, he's come for his bride. And that bride is the church. And it culminates at the cross. Remember in the story in Genesis, we have that Eve is taken from the side of Adam to be his wife. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The church is taken from the side of Christ on the cross. That's the water and blood from the side of Christ. Baptism and Eucharist. You know, the church is born. Flesh of his flesh, your bone of his bone is born there. And not only that, remember, Eve is not just his bride. She's the mother of all the living. The church fathers love to say, Eve was the mother of all who are born. The church is the mother of all who are born again. And there are two things that happen. We have Mary, who's not described. We're not just emphasizing she's a symbol here. We don't call her Mary Johnson. We call her simply the mother of Jesus. She, she, she's at play two places in that gospel. One, where is she? At Cana. She's at Cana at the wedding reception. And she's at the foot of the cross. And what happens there? So when this, this bride comes out, this mother, what does Jesus say? Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. That's what we call her mother church. The bride of Christ, our mother. You know, Eve is the mother of all who are living. You know, the church is the mother of all who are born, who are born again. Now, this is hardly alone to John. Look at how Paul talks about it in his letters. He says in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the words, so that he might present her at the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is in the context of marriage. He goes on, unless we miss this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. These are the words of Paul. How do we describe Christ and his church? How do we describe that kind of love? He says, it's a man and woman united in marriage. That's what it looks like. Now what's the lesson we have for us today? I think an important lesson to us, especially those who are probably evangelical, is... You know, when I was younger, it was common when you first you had all these friends from college and things. And often, of course, people get married. And often you hear like this, something like this when people get married. Love, uh, love her, hate him. Love him, hate her. They marry someone saying, I, I love my friend, I think, but who's she? Vice versa. We like the one, we don't like the other. You know, saying that, yeah, I love this guy, but boy, his wife, come on. You know, vice versa. They love her, hate him, love him, hate her. That used to be the way people used to say it. You know, I hear that a lot in church. If people sometimes say, I love Jesus, just a church I can't stand. Oh, I love Jesus. I just can't stand his church. 
I think the result is similar. When people say that, they're normally explaining why they gradually drifted away from their friends. What happened? Well, you know, he got married and loved him, hate her, vice versa. Love her, hate him. It just didn't work out. I liked him, but I couldn't get along. And you sort of drift away, and both relationships are broken. I'm sure the same thing is true if we try to make our relationship with Christ just an individual, certainly our, our individual commitment. We look at a personal commitment with Jesus Christ. This is one, one-on-one. But if we try to make this an exclusive thing and put the church that he's created behind us, the same thing happens. We, we say we hate, if we hate the church, we'll end up drifting away. We drift from one, we drift from the other. You know, John, the Apostle John warned us about this. He said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For how can he, uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he's seen, cannot love God whom he, who he's not seen. So the early church fathers remind us the same thing was true of the church. We can't love the bridegroom and reject his bride. So then we ask ourselves, a lesson for us, why sometimes is it so hard to love the church? Hmm. Let's be honest about it. Why, is it. why do we say, love him, hate her, <laughs> in this case? Why can that be so hard? Well, it's true the church often doesn't live up to her ideals. But you know, that's not new. That's the story of the New Testament. Read the letters to the churches in Revelation. Right? We've had the study on that. Look at the churches Paul writes to. But I love, even at the worst moment when Wright Paul's to Corinthians saying, you're doing things even pagans don't do, he still was in the church of God at Corinth. It's still the church. You know, this is how God thinks. Remember, it says, here's what love looks like. It's why we were still sinners that God loved us. It wasn't we were cleaned up. It's well, that's the church. God loves her. We love her too. So yes, it's not a matter of when she gets better, we will love her. It's like people who think, sometimes people go to despair and don't believe God can love her. They think repentance means cleaning up our acts and God can come in. That can't be done. It's faith alone. Oh, we can say, it's hopeless. I can't clean this up. We open the door and let God come in. So that's the same thing here. A second thing is the church is the polar opposite of everything in our society. We live in a consumer society. And it flatters us. Flattery, flattery is always lying, right? Flattery is telling people things they want to hear. So we tell people in a consumer society that it's all about you. It's all about your needs. It's like on those Amazon sites where you're always rating things, or thumbs up or thumbs down, etc. You're always rating it, but you're the supreme arbiter of these things. So if we come to church with a consumer mentality, we're going to be disappointed. It's the kind of thing, well, you know, you come to hear, well, the music was good, but I could have done without the preacher. You have, you have this rating scale. Mm. Okay, but we, we can't come to the church like that, Jesus tells us. Mm. The church is the polar opposite. It's completely focused on the needs of others. Mm. First of all, the church is the place where we're called to love as Christ loved. Mm. Not just other people, as Christ loved. So it says here, a new commandment, Jesus said, is, is the very last words to his apostles. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also love one another. Not just love one another, as I have loved you, love one another. That's complete self-giving love. He was loving people who were about to, and he knew were about to run away from him, deny him. He's loving them to the end. He says he saw his own, he loved them to the end. Knowing everything, he loved them. It's also more than that, it's a place where we're called to put ourselves ahead, put others ahead of ourselves. It's not just love our neighbors as ourselves, to actually love our neighbor, put them ahead of ourselves. And that's how we love like Jesus. We have this in Philippians too. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Hmm. Not as equally, as more significant to yourself than he appeals to Jesus. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's telling you, if we had to wonder what does it mean to love others, my last commandment is, as I have loved you, loved others. That's what it looks like. It's not being nice, it's not being responsible, it's meaning putting them first, pouring ourselves out. That's what becoming a human being, Jesus said, becoming the lowest, not just any death, death on a cross. That's what it means. It's also the place we're called to serve then rather than be served. Jesus said the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. So what's our conclusion today? In today's psalm, we celebrate with joy the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and to David. That promise is fulfilled in that one offspring, Son of David, Son of God, Jesus Christ, whose kingdom is forever, who's won an eternal victory. He's put, he's put an arrow through the heart of death for us. We celebrate that we have prayed the Son. But we also celebrate his bride, the church. So let's pray for the grace to love both in word and deed, not just the bridegroom who loves us, but the bride that he loves. Mm -hmm. 